going to start with verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6 from verse 1. Uh, before we read, let's just have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, that we can take your word and, and discover the pearls and the things that are so worth so much, worth eternal, or has eternal value. Thank you that we can study your word and, and find those pearls and find those jewels that are in your word. And this morning, as we look at missions, and the fact that you have called us, there is this great commission in the word. Father, may your word speak to us this morning through the life of the, uh, um, the prophet Isaiah. And thank you so much, Father, that we can, can read your word, understand your word through your spirit that dwells within us. And I pray this morning that you will enable me as your servant to teach your people so that we may all be glorified. And you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. And now verse 8. Also I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. For here am I, send me. And then verse 9, that first part says, And he said, Go, and then tell this people how God immediately then sends Isaiah to be an instrument in his hands, to be a spokesman, to speak uh, on, on God's behalf. An amazing passage of Scripture. If you look at verse 5, you will see that there is a woe. This is one of the seven woes we find in our passage. Uh, one of the seven woes of judgment. And this is a judgment that is actually a judgment that Isaiah realizes that he is a, 
a man of unclean lips, he dwells among people with unclean lips, and because he dwells among those people, they are judged. So it's one of the seven woes, and the last of the seven woes that we find in uh, chapter 6. Now, our focus verse for this morning is verse 8, where he says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. Interesting. Do you see that, those words? It says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Singular. You see that? And who will go for us? Plural. And what we find there is the triune God yeah, in our passage. The triune God who is the one who sends. Amazing. Now, beloved, we're living in a time, I believe, like none other in history. I mean, we are seeing an explosion in technology. They're talking about the fourth industrial revolution. And, uh, I mean, it's changing the world to the extent that normal people, and I call myself one of those normal people, really, really struggle to keep up. Things are just moving too fast. Everything in the world is, is just, it feels as if it's in overdrive. I mean, until the middle of the 1900s, people were traveling from the north to the south of the globe. They were traveling with ships. You know, that was their means of travel, their means of transport. Today, people go on a cruise ship for a holiday. Not to go somewhere, but rather to go enjoy themselves. We can st still say that cargo ships, are ah, they moving things, but I mean... People no longer use it as a means of travel. They use it as a means of leisure. Today, people fly from South Africa to Europe straight in less than 14 hours. The world has just become so small. We can so easily move from one place to another. There's also been an explosion in knowledge yeah, around the world. All you need to do is you just take your phone and you find out what Professor Google has to say. And you can find most everything is on Google. Because knowledge is something that has just become available to everyone with the press of a button. Where years ago we had to go to the library and get ourselves some books and then we had to go and research things to find out what it meant. Today it's in our pocket. I remember many years ago, we went to uh, the, the railway station here in Newcastle, and it was one of the hubs in this area where they did all the changes of the lanes and what, what, what. Um, and I remember they took us into the computer room. And, and you must hear, they took us into the computer room. The computer was literally in a place that was about three times the size of this auditorium. That was the computer. And obviously you had your little screen in on the outside and where everything worked and how the lanes were changed and so on. Today, what you have in your pocket as a phone is stronger than the computer they had those days in those, three, those massive, massive big rooms. You're carrying it around in your pocket. It's just unbelievable how things have changed and it is still changing. Now, according to the clever people, they say that knowledge doubles 
every three to six months. And I think I'm, I'm a little behind. I think it's faster now. I think it could be every month that information or knowledge doubles. And then obviously we, we, we must have seen that people are more busier today than ever before. People hardly have time to sit and to just relax. I remember there's the story about this old um, farm worker, this old gentleman, and they were walking to the farm and he was walking with a few younger people and they were moving it. They were walking fast and so he just fell behind up to a point where they turned around because he's so far behind. They came back to him. They said to him, hey, Madala, you must come now, man. We, we, are, we, are gonna, we need to get to the farm. And he says, no, I need to sit down first. I've got to wait for my soul to catch up with me. And that's what's happening in the world that we're living in. We are running away from our own souls. Everything is just speeding up. And, and what happens is we just become part of this rat race. Everything is just becoming faster and faster and faster. Everything is changing. And this is not surprising because God actually told us about it now. Remember Daniel, the prophecy in Daniel 12, verse 4, where it is said, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And then it says, Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And it's so accurate. Isn't that exactly what's happening in the world around us today? People are running to and fro, and it's up and down, and this way, that way. And by the way, missions is no longer the same as it was in years gone by. Years ago, we had to get onto a, a boat, and off we go into the mission field, and it takes you three weeks or so to get to your destination. It could take longer than that. And you would dedicate your life to missions and it would take a long time for you just to get to your mission field. Nowadays, you get onto a plane, and it's within hours you're on the mission field, and you can be busy doing missionary work cross-culturally. Another thing that's happened in the world that we're living in is people have moved. People that used to stay in Asia are now in Europe, even in South Africa. People have moved all over the world. They've, they've changed from one country to another, which means that those that we used to had to go and reach somewhere in the world, they are on our doorstep. It is amazing how the world has changed. As little as 80 years ago, very interesting, it would have taken us or a missionary to leave South Africa to go to India, it would have taken them three weeks. It's amazing. Now we do a mission or a trip. We go and do training, um, and we do outreaches, and, and all of those things within three weeks. Do yourself a favor. And, and I, I really want to emphasize this. Do yourself a favor. Read the book of Acts, the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And just not, don't, don't read the detail of, of what he does, but focus in on his journey. How long it took him to move from one place 
to another. How long it took him to finish off one missionary journey. How he would be with people and they would say, please stay, stay longer. And then he would stay longer. Because he didn't have a, how can I say, a, a book that told him he had to be in the next place the following day because it's going to take weeks anyway to get there. And then what you do is look at the quality of work that Paul did in comparison to the work that we do nowadays or mission work that's done nowadays and the speed that it's done at. It's absolutely amazing to see how the world has changed. I mean, we can reach out to people on the other side of the world and you can do it with WhatsApp. You can have a blog on the internet and people can read it from the other side of the world. Our sermons on Sermon Audio has been read. Normally it's, it's at average about 20 countries a month that is reached. And some of those countries are closed for the gospel. I don't even know how in the world they get it, but they get it. The world has changed and it's never going to change back. We are on a journey, exciting journey though, because God has called us and his great commandment to make disciples of all nations hasn't changed. He still calls each and every believer to preach the gospel, to share the good news of the gospel, to share their own testimony with people around them. That hasn't changed. And the calling of the church is still to make disciples, to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that one of the major questions that is faced in missions today is not the question, go, but the question, why go? We've got technology at the tip of our fingers, tip, you know, tips of our fingers. Why do we still have to go? If the people that we have to reach are right at our doorstep. A friend of ours was involved with uh, missions to, to French-speaking people, uh, um, uh, Portuguese-speaking people. And he had a congregation in, in Johannesburg with just Portuguese-speaking people. And he was reaching out to them. He didn't have to go to their country. They were right there on his doorstep. And they reached out and there's a church, a Portuguese church in Joburg ministering to, the, to those people. It's interesting, Hutchin Taylor was the director of China Inland Missions, and it is said that he interviewed a group of missionary candidates, and he asked them, why do you want to go, you know, to another country as a foreign missionary? Why do you want to go? And one person replied and said, because Christ commanded us, that's why we want to go. Another person answered and said, because millions are perishing without Christ. That's why we need to go. And many other reasons were given explaining why the various members of this group wanted to go as missionaries to a foreign country. 
finally Hudson Taylor he said to them, all of these motives, however good, will fail or will fail you in times of testing and trials and tribulations and possible death. All your motivations will fail you. There is only but one motive that will sustain you in all the trials and the testing that you will experience as a missionary, and that's namely the love of Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ constrains me, or constrains us, he says, you see, the love of Christ constrains us in the Greek word that carries the me- has the meaning that the love of Christ, it compels us, it compresses us, it actually arrests us. It is the love we have for Christ and the love that Christ has for us that stirs inside of us. That we are willing to go into the world, go into a hostile country, go into a country where the gospel is not allowed to be preached, to go and preach the gospel. And that is the motive, or the supposed motive, it should be the motive of every single person that goes. They are compelled by the love of Christ for the lost. It's as if they say, I cannot do but go. I have to. Because the love of Christ for the lost compels me. It urges me. It has arrested me. Remember the words of the Great Commission? Where Jesus said, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying in Matthew 28, 18, and 18 to 20, He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In verse 19, He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 20, He says, Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. You see, the calling of the church is still to go. Even though we have all the technology in the world, believers are still called to go. You see, nothing in this world, nothing can compare to the one-on-one interaction that believers have with non-believers. The love of Christ that flows from us to an unbelieving world, nothing can change that. Nothing can compare with that. That's why Christ hasn't changed his commission. He is still calling us to go. Whether it is in Abba Park, or in Newcastle, or in KwaZulu Natal, or South Africa, or a foreign country. But we are called to go, to leave our comfort zones behind, and to take the love of Christ to a dying world and be the hands and the feet and the mouth of Jesus Christ on this earth. Even though we know 
people will hate us because we share the good news of the gospel. They hated Christ first, so they will hate us as well. We know that many will be killed for the sake of the gospel. It has happened through all the ages and it will still happen in the future. It will happen today. But we are still called to go. It was Paul who said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he said, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace of, ach, that is in Jesus Christ and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And that's the first principle of discipleship. You're taking somebody under your wing and teach that person to observe all the things that Jesus has taught us. Paul makes it a, more little, a little bit more practical. He says, all the things that you've learned from me, you go and teach somebody else. But Jesus started with it. He said, hey, all the things that you heard me, go and teach the disciples. Those you are discipling, teach them to observe all those things. Now in Isaiah chapter 6, what a passage. What a passage. There are three things that, that just stood out as I was working my way through this passage. Very well-known passage. So I'm, I'm just going to take it from a little bit of a different angle, the angle of missions. We know that Isaiah was, was sent to the people of Israel. He was a prophet of God for the time that he lived in. But what God, when God called Isaiah and when he said, who shall go? That call is still there today. Not just in the time of Isaiah. Not just in the time of Christ in Matthew chapter 28. It's even there today. Who will go for us? And that's the Almighty God, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who empowers disciples now, who empowers God's people to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the othermost parts of the earth. And it's God who calls and says, who shall go for us? Because God still wants people to go. He hasn't changed his mind. And the first thing that I see in these verses in Isaiah chapter 6 is that Isaiah is confronted. We can call it Isaiah's confrontation. You see, 750 years before the incarnation of Jesus Christ, before Jesus Christ became flesh, Isaiah saw this vision, this amazing vision. And we read it in verses 1 to 4. Let's just read it again because it's so beautiful. In verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6, he says, In the year of King Uzziah, or that the King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord... Sitting upon a throne. Uh, reminds me of what we're doing in the evening, now, in the evening messages in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're finishing off with chapter 6, where we are exposed to what happens around the throne. So here he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. 
and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, 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 means three times holy, perfectly holy. You only repeat something three times if it's really, really real. God is really holy. So he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah has this privilege to have a vision of, of God on his throne. This amazing privilege. He sees God in this vision. And he sees the holiness of the Lord. And what this vision does, it really deeply touches the heart of Isaiah. He's touched. It's not just as if he sees this vision and he's untouched. No, 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 he's touched. It's kind of like a face-to-face -face with the living Almighty God. The holy, three times holy God. And Isaiah has this encounter with the living Almighty God. And in verse 5, we see the reaction of Isaiah. Think about it for a moment. What would your reaction be? What would my reaction be? If we had an encounter like this with the living Almighty God, the holy, three times holy God, what would our reaction be? Just read with me verse 5 again. Or it says, and I said, this is Isaiah speaking. Eh? And he says, woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What is the first thing that Isaiah sees? What is the first thing that Isaiah is confronted with? Is his own uncleanness, his own sin. His own, let's call it, unholiness in the sight of a holy God. This is what Isaiah immediately realizes, that he's unholy. He's not worthy to see what he's seeing. How can he, as a sinner with unholy lips, a sinner that lives an unholy life, how in the world can he have the privilege to look at a vision of the Almighty God? Wow. You see, not only did Isaiah see himself as unholy, let's call it unclean, whatever you want, sinful. No, he even sees his own people having unclean lips. He looks at the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God, and he sees them as having unholy or unclean lips. B. 
being unholy in the sight of a holy God. And that's what he's confronted with is his own brokenness, his own sin. But when is he confronted? He's confronted when he has a vision of the holy living God. Oh, beloved. And may God give that in the time that we're living in, in this fast, rapid-moving world that we're living in, that people will once again have a vision of God, of the three times holy God, and that they would react the way that Isaiah reacted and acknowledge their sinfulness, be confronted with their own sin as they look at a perfect being. Beloved, when we are confronted with our sinfulness, and especially if we are living in sin, because what's happening is the church is well known for double standards. The church is well known for the hypocrites. The church is well known for people who profess to know Jesus Christ and the power of his, of his resurrection and people who know that they can live uh, in, in victory over sin, the bondage of sin and the power of sin. But then they live in bondage to sin. The church is known for it worldwide. We said it, I've said it many times from this pulpit, and I can say it again. The same sin you find in the world is prevalent in the church. Among professing believers. Beloved, you know what? If you are confronted with your sin as Isaiah was confronted with his sin, you know what would be the last thing on your mind and my mind? to go because I'm in bondage how in the world can I go and preach freedom how can I go and preach delivery from sin the power of sin and the bondage of sin if I'm a hostage to sin if I'm a slave to sin how can I go I believe that's why we are struggling to get missionaries into the mission field today it's because sinners Christians are indulging and enabling so not how can I say indulging in sin let me let me use those words they're enjoying their sinful nature they enjoy all the things that the world has to offer them instead of being holy that's what the scripture says be holy for I am holy Beloved, when Isaiah was confronted with his sin, he immediately, immediately confessed, he immediately knew this was judgment on him and his life. My mouth is unclean. I am unholy. I live among a people with unclean lips. It's interesting that the church knows what God's standards are. 
as if there's a refusal among so many to live up to God's standard. Have you noticed that? Why am I just a figment of my own imagination? So many believers, professing believers, who just do not live up to God's standard. And I'm not talking about the standard of perfection. I'm talking about the standard to which God will hold us one day. That I'm every single day being sanctified, being made more holy, becoming more Christ-like. Every single day I'm changing in the inner, inner man into the image and likeness of Christ. There's a change that's taking place in my life on a constant basis. I'm becoming more and more holy. I am moving further and further away from the world and the things of this world and the things that I used to love before. Those things are just falling away. Beloved, you cannot go into the mission field as an unsaved sinner even though there are many people that goes into the mission field because they think they can repay God for His goodness, maybe God has done something good for them, then they decide to go into the mission field and just give their life into missions because of what God has done for them, as if they can repay God for His goodness and His grace and His mercy. And there are many who goes into the mission field, even go into evangelism, and they end up with a, a disaster of an outreach. Because the person that they want to share with the lost, they don't even know that person intimately. Let me give you something from my own life. When I was studying for the ministry, I went on an outreach and we all did a course in how to evangelize people, so we had the head knowledge. And the one evening we were reaching out in the Manzumtoti and in the shopping center, and I remember there was a young man and he was standing against the wall like young men do, you know, when you in high school. And he was hanging against the wall trying to keep the wall up. So I walked up to this young man and I said to him, Hello, and, you know, did all the chit-chat stuff, because that's how I learned to do evangelism. And then I said to him, do you believe in Jesus? And this young man looked at me and he said, I don't believe in Jesus, I believe in logic. And I stood there with a mouthful of teeth and nothing to say. It was as if I just became, all the stuff that I've just learned, I mean, I, I've learned this stuff. I'm supposed to be able to evangelize. I, I had nothing to say. So I said to him, well, I just want to say to you, Jesus loves you. And I walked away. And later on, I went and sat on a sand dune. And I said to the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to come and share you with these people. But I don't even know you. I know of you. And I know quite a bit of verses. 
but I don't know you. And let me say to you, that was the beginning of the end of Joppe van Kampen. But it was the beginning of searching to know Christ more. To get to know the Savior that I was trying to share with others. To share Him because I know Him. Because I know what He's done for me. And you know how easy it was from then on to go? And to share. It was the simplest thing in the world. I would easily just share the good news. Share Christ. Because I knew him. And I knew that he knew me. Beloved, it's amazing. If we look at the life of Isaiah... And even in my own life, I could see it. And I mean, I'm not a match to Isaiah, let me tell you. Um, but it's amazing that missions starts with the acknowledgement that we are unclean in the sight of our holy God. We must always remember God is pure, He's holy, He's righteous. We are but sinners, unholy, unrighteous, saved by grace. And if we acknowledge our sinfulness, our sinful state, it's amazing what God will do. Because Isaiah doesn't stop at, um, at verse 5. Listen to verse 5 quickly. <clears throat> he says, Woe, nah, is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now listen to verse 6. And here's the miracle. Here's the amazing thing that happens to Isaiah. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand the li a life coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. And your sin purged. Here comes one of the living beings, Seraphim, and touches the lips of the prophet Isaiah. And, I, and Isaiah is cleansed right there. Cleansed from his sin. After Isaiah made the profession, after he confessed that he was a sinner, unworthy to even have a vision of the Almighty God, the three times holy God. Absolutely amazing. 
You see, God, through these seraphim, touched these lips. So Isaiah can now speak about the greatness of God. He can now speak about God's holiness. He can speak about God's forgiveness. He can speak about God's glory. You see, God took away all of his guilt. He received a clear conscience before God. And the, how can I say this feeling of guilt disappeared? As God applied the atonement, and I believe this is the atonement, or as prof, how can I say it's prophetic of the atonement that was yet to come in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Remember that the sacrifices that was brought on the altar, that it was all but a shadow of the perfect sacrifice that was to come in Christ. So, beloved, that coal from that altar that touches the lips of Isaiah points forward to Jesus Christ who would save from sin. And Isaiah is cleansed in the moment he is cleansed. God does something even more amazing than touching the lips of Isaiah, this sinner. God calls Isaiah to answer the call. You see, after releasing him from his condition, his sin, after being cleansed by God, it's as if God opens up his ears to hear God's call. And we call it a serious call. This is the third thing that Isaiah experiences is this serious call from God. In verse 8, look at that. Whom shall I send? God knew Isaiah just saw a vision. God knew that the seraphim just touched the lips of Isaiah. God knew he was just cleansed of his sin. And here comes God, and immediately, whom shall I send? And who shall go for us? Beloved, and this is a serious call, because Isaiah is now called by the Almighty God, the three times holy God, the one who touched his lips. He's now called by this God to go and be a voice for him, to be a mouthpiece for him. To go and speak on his behalf. This is huge. This is a serious call. This is not just a call to follow Christ or to follow God. This is a call to go and to be an instrument in God's hands. To go wherever God calls him and to do whatever God calls him to do or wants him to do. You see, God wants to send someone, but that someone must answer the call to go. But before that person can answer the call to go, their ears must be opened up. And the only way that the ears can be opened up is that God has to forgive their sin. And the only way that somebody's sin can be forgiven by God is if somebody acknowledges that they are sinners. In the sight of a holy God. So once you confess your sin, 
And once you've been cleansed by God from your sin, and you've been forgiven of your sin, your ears open up. And then you hear that call. Who shall I send? Who shall go for us? Beloved, and I want to ask you this morning, have you heard that call? Have you heard God asking you, who shall I send? Who shall go for us? Have you heard that? Maybe not in the same words. Have you been obedient to that call? If you heard it? Or are you living in disobedience to the call of God? The highest call that anybody can get is to be a mouthpiece for the Almighty God. And in our case, in the New Testament, to go and share the good news of the gospel with a dying world who has no hope. Beloved we, need to, beloved, we need to clearly understand why Isaiah went as God's spokesman so that we can also answer this call. Just like Isaiah, we are also sinners. Just like Isaiah, we also need to be cleansed. Just like Isaiah, only then can our ears be opened up and we can answer to God's call. And it's only after we hear his call. Only then can we go. Because if we go and we have not been called, that's when we mess up. And only if we go, only then can we be used by God as his instrument wherever he calls us to go. I would like to close with a story. I don't know where I found the story. It's just a, such a beautiful story that I, I wanted to share it with you, and I close with this. Beloved, we need to become instruments in the hands of the maestro. We need to become instruments in the hands of the Almighty God as he enables us, forgives us, um, and then calls us and then gives us the power to do what he calls us to do. There is uh, the story about Fritz uh, Chrysler. He lived from 1875 to 1962. Apparently, he was a world-famous violin violinist. Now, clearly, I'm not very into violin. Uh, that's why I didn't know he was a, a great violinist or world-famous one. But anyway, he earned a, few, a fortune with his concerts and his uh, compositions that he did. But he also generously gave most of it away. He was one of those people that could just give and give and give. But then on his journeys, on one of his trips, he discovered uh, an amazing violin. But uh, he wasn't able to buy it because he didn't have the kind of money for that, that kind of violin. And later, having raised enough money, so he went back, raised money when he had enough money to buy this violin, he returned to the seller of the violin, hoping to purchase this beautiful instrument. But to his great dismay, uh, it had already been sold to a collector. Somebody that saw the value of the violin and um, 
decided to buy this violin as part of his collection. So Chrysler made his way to this new owner, um, to his home, and he asked him to please, if he can buy that violin from him. He explained to him that he saw it before and he would like to buy this violin. And the collector said that it had actually became, become a, a prized possession of his and he doesn't want to sell it. So Chrysler was very disappointed. And as he was about to leave, he had an idea. So he asked this collector, he said, could I play the instrument once more before it is consigned to silence? Because remember, it's a collector's item now. They're going to hang it up, and people are going to look at it, not listen to it, just look at it. Because it's a priced violin. So the collector gave permission to uh, Chrysler, and it is said that Chrysler, uh, Chrysler, as he played this violin, he filled the room with such heart-moving music that the collector's emotions were deeply stirred by the sound that came out of that violin. So the collector said to Chrysler, he said, I have no right to keep that to myself. He exclaimed, it's yours, Mr. Chrysler. Take it into the world and let people hear it. Take it into the world and let people hear it. Beloved, we must take what God did to us. You're a masterpiece. When God forgives you of your sin, washes you, gives you a new life and a new heart, makes you a brand new person, fills you with his spirit, gives you power to share the good news of the gospel. You know how precious you are. You're much more precious than that violin. And you've got a much bigger story to tell than this violin can ever make music of. Beloved, what we need to do is we must take what God did for us and in us into this world so the, the world can hear it. And it's amazing. The moment we go and God the Holy Spirit takes us and uses us as an instrument in His hands, And when he starts, figuratively speaking, start playing us like that violin, the most awesome sound goes into a broken world that needs to hear the good news of the gospel desperately. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope that anyone on this earth has. Because remember, without Christ, we lost. Without Christ, there's no hope. 
It's only in Christ that we have hope. So, beloved, if you hear the voice, who shall go? Will you answer that call? And go to wherever the Lord leads you or calls you or sends you and allow him to use you like this maestro that plays the violin. Because then we will fill this earth with the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this world so desperately needs. Will you go? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you very much. Thank you that we can answer to your call to go to my neighbors, to go to my family, to go to uh, my school to go to my biggest enemies, to go to wherever you call me and wherever you send me because you've forgiven us of our sin. You've cleansed us of our sin through the blood of Christ. You have forgiven us. And you can also forgive the greatest sinner that is on this earth because you've done it for us. I pray, Father, as Isaiah reacted to the call when you called him whom shall I send who shall go for us Father I pray when you call us in this local church and those who are listening online Father I pray please enable us to say yes and to go and to share the beauty of the gospel with a dying world. So we pray in Jesus' name.